cost. What sort of claim can Jesus make on Mary's life? If we look at her life for just a moment, we say an absolute claim, a claim on every part of her life. Mary, how, how is Mary obedient to God, whatever the cost? Just going to itemize some things. Mary's a teenager, engaged to Joseph. Mary is visited by an angel and told that God's going to put a, a baby into her womb. And God's going to enter the world through Mary. Mary uh, the reality of this uh, made Joseph want to uh, divorce Mary. You know, his fiance is pregnant. And he knows that he's not the father. And he wants to distance himself from this. But God intervenes. But this would have caused tension. Tension in their relationship. I mean, she's a teenage girl. Now she's going to have God's baby. And now the guy that she's betrothed to doesn't want to be with her. You can imagine this tension. Even more, Mary, this teenage girl, has to go and communicate to her parents and her community that she's going to be pregnant for the next nine months. You can imagine the confusion and complexity within the relationships. Nine months pregnant, God ensures that there's a census, and Mary and Joseph are forced to walk to Bethlehem 150 kilometers away from their home. And because Mary's parents aren't from Bethlehem, she has to separate from her mother and other women in her tiny little village of about 100 people who might help her through her birth. And she's left alone in a foreign village in an animal cave to give birth, and her helper is her teenage husband-to-be, Joseph. And we find out that Joseph probably got some blood on his hands because uh, what he has to go and purify himself as well, which was something that only the birth mothers did, unless the father got involved. Her baby's bed is an emptied feeding trough. Think animal spits and snots and dirty water emptied out, and the baby, that's its baby's, the baby's little crib. And then after going through all of this, this teenage girl who's given birth to this baby with her husband-to-be has to walk home at 150 kilometers with a baby in her arms who's the son of God. Don't mess it up, Mary. And 40 days, after, 40 days later, she has to walk to Jerusalem with her husband Joseph, which is 150 kilometers again, different, different city, uh, not far from where she's given birth because she has to go perform some purification rituals and present the firstborn son to, at the temple. She's a fail by our culture standards. What kind of pressure is this on a teenage girl? What does God think he's doing? Who gave God permission to disrupt her life so badly? How can God demand so much from this young girl? Young girl, not, not any older than uh, Lisa or just a little bit older than Ella. Mary, probably from, like I said, this tiny little village, probably illiterate, uneducated. If she's had any education, she's received it from her village temple or, or a synagogue, sorry. And then it would be in the first five books of the Bible. So the only knowledge she would have is the, the kind of the law of God. And uh, she seems to have known that well, or the people in her village know it well. And it's, she's, she's memorized it in her heart because 40 days later, she goes. And Leviticus said this, if a woman conceives and bears a male child then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she will be unclean. Then, after this, the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. Seven plus 33 is 40. And Luke says that after, how many days did she go back to Jerusalem? 40. 
The law also stated, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. Exodus says a couple of times. So Mary and Joseph are so devoted to God and they are going to practice obediently God's law. And so at great cost to themselves, they go back to Jerusalem to bring Jesus. Now we find out about them uh, a few other things. So, so Luke writes about their devotion. He says at least five times in the short passage, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to, to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. And when, when the parents had brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Do you think they were doing what was in their own mind, or do you think that they were being obedient to God, whatever the cost? Luke is making it exceptionally clear. They are obeying God, whatever the cost. And the only way they know how to do that is to do according to the law of the Lord. And so the law stated in Leviticus 2, 7 to 8, it stated that what should be sacrificed for Mary is a lamb and a turtle dove. But then it says a little bit later, but hold on, for the poor, because some, some people can't afford a lamb, so for the poor you could sacrifice two doves or two pigeons instead. What does Luke tell us that they sacrificed in the text? Two, two birds, not a lamb. In other words, what does this tell us about Joseph and Mary? They were poor. So Jesus, you know, we, we might not want to identify so much. We may not be totally comfortable to identify as poor or to identify with the poor. But God enters the world into a poor family. He identifies in a poor, and I'm not saying they were experiencing poverty, but they were certainly poor. And Jesus comes into a poor family. And Jesus experiences what it means to be a son in a poor household. He understands the poor. He loves the poor. He's mothered by the poor. His brothers and sisters are poor. His cousins are probably poor. But they honor the law of the Lord and they come before them. Jesus identifies in this way. Um, Now, this is a great cost already. Would you agree that Mary has obeyed God at great cost already? You would agree? Now they bring him to the temple, and this average Joe guy, he's not a priest, he's not anyone famous, uh, comes and grabs their baby and puts him in his arms and starts to prophesy, sings over them and prophesies over this child. And the prophecy is not that encouraging. He says to Mary, this child, this is a great child, it's God's child, this is the Messiah, this is the anointed one, that's very encouraging. However, they, this child is going to pierce your soul. If you, were, if you grew up Catholic, and some of you did, uh, you would know about the seven sorrows of Mary. The Catholics have kind of looked at that verse and, and tried to consider where did Jesus put a dagger through Mary's soul? Where did he cause her pain that only a mother could understand? Certainly, one of the times might have been, and, and in the Catholic tradition, one of the times is when Jesus was growing up. Remember, he was 12 years old, and his village where, had gone to Jerusalem to keep the law, and then they were on their way back, so probably about 100 people on their way back, and Mary realizes an hour or two hours into the journey that Jesus isn't there. He thought, she thought he was running around with the other 12-year-olds, but J- Jesus isn't there. And so they, they run back to Jerusalem, and they find him sitting in the temple in conversation, in Q&A with the, with the, with the priests in the temple. And everyone's amazed at Jesus' understanding, 
And, he's, and, and they say, where were you? Don't you understand? Don't you understand what you're doing to us? Don't you understand that we were worried about you? That's the next part of uh, what we've, you'll see in, in, in uh, time to come. And Jesus says, where did you think I was supposed to be? I'm meant to be in my father's house. <laughs> now, if your child ever says that to you, uh, mom, dad, I'm meant to be with my friends and separates from you at 12 years old and goes, you just, you, your, your expectations of me are wrong. You would be like hurt and upset. Mary can't be upset because what he's, once, what he's proclaiming is more righteous than what she, she is, but she can be hurt. And this is probably one of the daggers, the sorrows in her heart. Of course, seeing him crucified and buried would be others. And, and there's other times as well. But certainly, this moment where this 12-year-old Jesus separates and says, my primary relationship is not you and dad, but it's God my father. And I will do whatever he, he has for me to do. And the separation of who, who has primary role in Jesus' life. Oh, what a pain. Not Jesus. What a pain in your heart. In your heart. But Mary seemed to do this pretty well. She seemed to obey God at whatever cost pretty well. How come? Well, perhaps Mary didn't believe that her life needed to be a certain way. Perhaps Mary gave up that her life would be a certain way. Perhaps Mary didn't believe that God had to bless her in certain ways. Maybe she didn't cling to comfort or ease or privilege or power or beauty or independence or her autonomy or anything else that you and I are led to believe is almost our birthright. Maybe she let it go. So we believe that the pursuit of our own interests is part of our birthright, but Mary only assumed that giving birth to Jesus was right and let go of everything else. Mary is this beautiful example of obeying Jesus, whatever the cost. I remember when Regan got saved, someone told him to get baptized. I remember his answer was a good answer, confident one. Why? Does the Bible say that? Someone showed him in the Bible that baptism was there, and he went, okay, I'll do it. Obeying God, whatever the cost. It's going to be a bit weird. Getting put underwater and other people see. I'll have to tell people about it. Man, if that's what God wants, I'll do it. Obeying God, whatever the cost. Let's look at number two, Simeon. Simeon is an example of someone walking by the Spirit. Simeon was an ordinary guy. Let's get that clear. Who feels like an ordinary guy in the church? Like you don't feel like you're a super leader or you're just like, I'm a normal Christian, ordinary Christian. No one, a few of you. Okay, great. There's like half of you feel like ordinary Christians. Hopefully the other half don't feel like bad Christians. And, and I don't know what the other half feels. Hopefully you're just passive or not listening. Um, but most all of us are ordinary Christians. Simeon is just this average guy. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He, he's from no like... Uh, Levitical family or whatever, his house is just in Jerusalem, so he happens to live close to the temple. But what makes him special is it says that the Spirit of God was on Simeon. Just an average Christian who knew how to walk with the Spirit of God. Now before you think that makes him special, remember that Paul tells every Christian in Galatia to keep in step with the Spirit of God. So in other words, Paul would be saying every Christian can be like Simeon. But in this day and age, 
Luke shows us someone really special named Simeon. Luke says that the Holy Spirit was on Simeon. The Holy Spirit promised Simeon that he would see God's Savior before he died and that the Holy Spirit led Simeon to the temple the day that Mary and Jesus uh, brought him before the Lord. So Simeon followed the Holy Spirit's lead. By following the Holy Spirit's lead, Simeon just discovered that he was exactly where he needed to be when he needed to be there. He didn't have a lot of other answers from God. The only thing, we don't know that Simeon's old. There's nothing in the text that Simeon was an old man. The promise from the Holy Spirit or from God was only that you would see the Lord's Messiah before you die. He could have been 12 years old when he got that promise. He doesn't, it's not about his age. It's just about a promise. That's what he's waiting for. He's been to temple hundreds of times. He doesn't know when. It's a fog. Have you ever walked with God in a fog? Have you ever walked with God and thought, I don't have a lot of answers. I don't know what he wants from me. I don't know what he expects. But you know that you're walking with God. Well, that's Simeon. And by walking with God just day by day, in his new mercies every day, by the grace of God, being obedient as he walks with the Lord, he just finds that exactly where he needs to be, when he needs to be, then he happens to be on the steps of the temple as Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus because he kept in step with the Spirit. Jesus satisfied every longing of Simeon's heart. Now think about that. When we think about Jesus, Jesus is, we sing about him, this king who's sovereign over all. The songs were so well chosen today. COVID is, is like sending out city, it's, it's so confusing and, and praying for India and, and other nations are struggling so much. There is so much havoc going on. And we're saying this morning about the sovereign God who's over all things and his mercies are new every morning and we can trust him all the time. For my soul, is like, oh, thank you, Lord. That's, Simeon's not seen that yet. All Simeon sees is baby. And yet this little baby satisfies every longing in Simeon's heart. Simeon basically looks at Jesus, sings over him, prophesies about him, and then basically says, now I can die happy. Again, we don't know that Simeon's old. He could be 20 years old at this stage. Could be 30, could be 40, could be... We don't know. All we know is that his life is totally satisfied at this stage, and the promise of God has been revealed. He's just in complete contentment and peace. My eyes have seen Jesus. So when Jesus came into Simeon's life, he was filled with eternal satisfaction and peace. How how would you like eternal satisfaction and peace? I would like eternal satisfaction and peace. Baby Jesus brought Simeon eternal satisfaction and peace. He didn't care what else he did. God, take me home today. I don't mind. Then there's Anna. Before I tell you about Anna, let me just say one more time. Simeon is not an extraordinary Christian. He's just an average guy who walked with the Holy Spirit. That's it. Anna is this picture of someone who's heavenly minded. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. is famous for a quote where he said, some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Have you heard that quote? You have? (laughs) It's such a terrible quote. Um, Johnny Cash sang about it, and it was actually a very good song. In in Johnny Cash's song, what he's saying is that uh, you're so heavenly minded. I'm not going to sing it. He's like, but what he's not really actually saying is that you're heavenly minded. Johnny Cash is saying that you're so religiously minded. You think you're so superior to everyone else. 
that you can't actually engage with the people that really need the good news. You can't really engage with anyone that you think is inferior to you. So he's really talking about the religious spirit of some Christians who think that they just are better than everyone else and detached from the world. But that's not at all Anna in her heavenly mindedness. Um, Anna is this incredible woman um, who is so earthly minded that God can do some, uh, so heavenly minded that God can do some earthly good with her. The problem in our society is that we are so earthly minded, we might not be very heavenly good uh, in, in, in reality. L- listen to some of these stats again that uh, are true in our nation. This is, comes from our government. And these are the sa- very similar, not the same, but very similar between non-Christians and Christian Australians. Satisfa- uh, they, are, they are equally satisfied with the economy, which is not very satisfied. They equally don't have great hope for the future of the world. This is talking about Australian Christians, not just non-Christians. They don't have great hope for the future of the world. Um, Christians, Australian Christians felt no closer to their friends than non-religious Australians. In fact, Australian Christians felt closer to anyone who shared their values or hobbies. In other words, if you uh, enjoy going down south and you go down south with a friend, you feel closer to them than to someone who also believes that Jesus Christ was born, lived, died in your place, was buried in a tomb, was raised supernaturally from the grave, and then His Spirit came into your dead soul, brought it to life, and now you are both called children of God, adopted as brothers and sisters. You will spend eternity together, but I went camping with you. I feel closer than that person. The, the majority of Australian Christians. Any kind of hobby, I mean, I'm, I'm saying camping, but any kind of hobby. What, what's your hobby? Wine tasting, board games, footy, life sa- surf life-saving. I mean, what, what does our city do? What, what does our city, what do people get on about in our city? Whatever hobbies that we might do, Australian Christians uh, felt a closer to connection to people who kept their hobbies than people who walked in their faith. Skip. I've got a little cheeky part of here, and I'm not going to skip it. I am going to skip it. Sorry. No, no, don't worry about it. That was as cheeky as I get today. Being heavenly minded means that we live uh, entirely radically in this world. Because it means that when you're heavenly minded, it means that there's nothing that this world has for you which you don't already have better than in Christ. So you want security? Well, I have eternal security, so I don't need to fight for earthly security. You want comfort? Well, I have eternal comfort, so I don't need to uh, do anything to close everyone out so I can keep my earthly comfort. Do you want, what is it that you want? Do you want companionship, closeness, intimacy? I have intimacy through the Spirit of God with the Son of God, and I will eternally be in the presence of God. Therefore, I don't have to look for other people to be my God. Do I want approval? I have eternal approval of the Father in heaven. Therefore, I don't need to do whatever for the approval of others. What is it that your heart desires? What is it that my heart desires? When you're heavenly minded, you realize that that desire, that longing is already met in the Father. And therefore, you don't have to bend over backwards to, to find that in this earth. So being heavenly minded frees us to actually do some earthly good. Because we're not trying to 
farm out of the earth what it is we need. So we're trying to talk about Anna, right? So Anna is this 84-year-old widow uh, who says she was married to her husband for seven years. So she, let's say she got married in her teens, or let's, let's say late teens, because, you know, whatever, she, her parents didn't get onto it quickly, and she only got married late. Late teens, seven years, that puts her in her uh, mid-twenties. From her mid-twenties, she doesn't get married again. And in that society, she has no security. She has, she has uh, no family. She's got no, in a sense, no dignity within her society. She's, she's in a very insecure position, a very dangerous position, no protection, and, and no kind of guarantee of provision. But she go, where do we find her every day? Every single day we find her at the temple of the Lord, worshiping and praying and ministering to people every day. It means every day of her 20s, every day of her 30s, every day of her 40s, every day of her 50s, every day of her 60s, every day of her 70s, by this time probably limping to the temple, every day of her 80s, I apologize if you're 70 years old and you're not limping, every day of her, well, not every day of her 80s, 80s so far, she's 84. So what Luke's telling us, and in the the Greek it's not actually that clear, it could be that she has been a widow for 84 years, or it could be that she's 84 years old. Regardless, she has been alone for 60 to 84 years, but she's okay because every day she worships and prays and ministers to people. She's so heavenly minded that God does some earthly good with her. What an extraordinary woman. If she was any less heavenly minded, she might realize that she has no security, no future, and should worry about every day of her life. But because she's so heavenly minded, she lives an extraordinary life. And she's called the prophetess. God uses her so greatly. So she gives her life to to this calling. The temple is where the Lord's presence is found in, in this. It's where heaven touches earth. It's where people come near to God. So in other words, what Anna has done is that Anna has given her life to being near the presence of God and to ministering to his people. Anyone who wants to draw near God, Anna's ready to pray for you, to prophesy over you, to encourage you, to speak to you. And that's what she's giving her life to, not a building, but to the presence of the Lord. Amazing, right? She's like other people. Uh, think of Asaph who wrote in the Psalm, Psalm 73, Who have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That sound, it's a bit of a tricky verse. When I was younger, I thought that meant it was like a, a bit of a quid pro quo. Okay, I delight myself in the Lord, and then He gives me what I want. I didn't have the maturity to understand that if I delighted myself in the Lord, He is what I want. That's what delight means. And He will not resist Himself giving Himself to me. When God is beautiful to you, you have as much of Him as you need. And it shows that a person who is entirely heavenly minded does actually do some earthly good. Johnny Cash's song is great. The other quote is rubbish. I'm just kidding. I actually don't know the context of the quote, so please don't come and lecture me about how good it is. Uh, You're right. You're ready. You're right. You're right. You're right. 
but the way that we've heard it preached is rubbish. How does Jesus bring Theophilus and us reassurance? And can I just say now, as I come to a long landing, can I just say, this is not going to end in, you have to obey God whatever the cost. And you have to uh, walk with the Spirit like Simeon. And you have to um, be so heavenly minded that you might do some earthly good. I'm not going there, so don't expect that's coming. And if you already started feeling that, tear off that condemnation and that shame. Because there's not a person in this room who's walked obediently, whatever the cost. And there's not a person in this room who's walked perfectly with the Holy Spirit. And there's not a person in this room who's been so heavenly minded that you've done as much earthly good as you possibly could have. There just isn't. So the point is, you're not going to feel great about yourself if that's where we're going. We've got to go somewhere else. We'll end up there anyway, but that's not where we're going. If that's where we're going, I wouldn't get much reassurance. I'd probably lose a little bit of reassurance because I'd be like, I'm definitely not like a teenage girl. I'm not even like an average guy. And I'm way less than a widow, an 84-year-old widow. And we remember that Luke is trying to write to Theophilus to, to boost him and encourage him in his faith in Jesus. He wants to give him assurance of what he believes in Christ. Not teach Theophilus to be like Mary or Simeon or Anna. That's not the goal. But to tell about what God did through these amazing people for Theophilus in Jesus. So it's not about you and I hearing that the message is all about ourselves. But our lives are still pictured in the story, just not the people that we think. So who are we in this story? Who do you think you are in this story? It's like a bit of a rhetorical question. I don't want to... Nas hates these questions because then there's an answer, but it's an answer to actually that's set up for you to get it wrong, so then I can come in with a wow. <laughs> so don't answer the question. Don't. But some of you might get it right. And then you can just uh, pridefully in your own heart know that you got it right. What we are in the story is the temple. You and I are actually the, the temple in the story. The place where Jesus is brought. The place where God's presence comes. The place where the Spirit of God works. This temple that they came to was Herod's temple. He built it after Solomon's was destroyed. And Herod built this temple twice as big uh, with a much bigger marketplace so it would have a much bigger economy. And this is the temple where Jesus goes and turns over the tables and says, you've turned a house of prayer into a den of robbers and says, I'm going to pull this temple down. And interestingly enough, he did pull this temple down. He said it would be destroyed and, would, and it hasn't to this day been rebuilt, even though there's been many plans to rebuild it. It's never been rebuilt. And it never will be rebuilt. Because the temple moved. The temple's already been rebuilt. You can't rebuild something that's already been rebuilt. But where is it? What is it? Well, the Bible tells us that you and I have become the temple. We're the place of God's presence. We're the place of God, where God's Spirit dwells. We're, we're the ones whom Christ has come to and redeemed. Paul said to the Corinthians as plainly as possible, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So it's possible to be God's temple and not know it. It's possible to have God's Spirit dwell in you and not know it. 
If any of you go, yeah, but I haven't felt that. I didn't get like great little feelings about it, or I haven't had a warm experience. Well, it seems like some in Corinth didn't either. Paul had to say to him, don't you know this? The way you're living doesn't look like you know it, but let me just tell you the fact is, if your life is in Christ, you are God's temple, and His Spirit dwells in you. You have become the dwelling place of God's presence. The temple is where the Lord's presence is. It's where heaven touches earth. It's where people come near to God. Every now and then I have this I like flutter of confidence where I've got a meeting with someone and I, and I really don't know how I'm going to be able to do any good. Whether it's because I feel tired or whether I feel apprehensive about the meeting or I don't know this person well or they're kind of a weird personality to me. Probably means I'm the weird one, but, but you know what that's like when there's just someone you just don't know, how am I going to do this person good? And I'll be praying about it or something, and it's like the Holy Spirit puts this little boost in me to go, just be there. Just be with them. Because as a, as a presence of God in this world, just being there might do them good. Mark, it's not you. It's not what you might say. It's not what might, you might, just go and be. Just go and be one of God's children with them. Just go and trust God alongside them. It's like, what? How's that possible? Because we are God's temple, the dwelling place of His presence, and He can work through us. Theophilus can be reassured that because of all that God has done through Jesus and the lives of others, his life has truly become the dwelling place of the Lord. Theophilus, I want you to be assured that your faith in Christ is legitimate. One of the ways that you can be assured is let me tell you about these three people and all they did and all God did through them, their obedience, whatever the cost, how they walked with the Spirit and how they were so heavenly minded, God used them for earthly good. That's what God did through Jesus and more. Theophilus, you can be assured of your faith in Christ. God has done so much for us. How did this all occur? Let's put the wheels out and bring this home. This all occurred because Jesus obeyed God, whatever the cost. And by keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, Jesus remained entirely heavenly minded, achieving the greatest earthly good. Jesus obeyed God, whatever the cost. I told you about what Jesus was like from the age of 12. I won't tell you again. But from the age of 12, the point is that Jesus is willing to do whatever it cost. Even if that meant that he had to look at the tears in his mother's eyes as he hurt her. Not wrong, not sinfully, not evilly, but as he saw that, as he grew up in God and understood who he was and understood his calling, and he saw the pain that it caused, the confusion that it might have caused, Jesus was committed to being God's man, whatever the cost. As he got older, he began to wear the cost himself more and more. But initially, you could see it in his mother's eyes. Don't you know that I must be in my father's house? Isaiah says about Jesus, um, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus lost out. Big time. He lost out on uh, raising a family. He lost out on time with cousins, on pursuing a wife, on raising children, on building a house or a home, on the dignity of work and building a career. 
He lost out on a thousand other normal things because he was the man who had to be despised and rejected, acquainted with sorrows and grief. He was obedient to God, whatever the cost. But Jesus also walked by the Spirit. This was what enabled him to be obedient. And the Spirit led Jesus, when he started his ministry, straight into the desert for 40 days. And Jesus fasted there for 40 days, and he was without food, and he was tempted at his lowest point. His entire identity, entire being, tempted by Satan himself. I haven't been tempted by Satan himself, but I've found temptation difficult in my life. I don't know how much harder it would be if it was Satan himself leading me to that. But Jesus overcame by keeping in step with the Spirit and by trusting in God's Word over him. For three years he had no place to call home, no guarantee of a meal, no choice in seeing his relatives, no Sunday dinner with brothers or sisters, no option to enjoy the companionship of a wife or the celebration of children. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, healed the sick, bound the brokenhearted, taught disciples, confronted the Pharisees, escaped death until it was time, and the Holy Spirit led him to be crucified. Jesus' determination to obey God, whatever the cost, kept him in step with the Holy Spirit and led him to the cross of crucifixion and a tomb of burial, whatever the cost. Isaiah writes, It is our weaknesses that he carried. It is our sorrows that weighed him down. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. If Jesus was any less heavenly minded, he wouldn't have been any earthly good. If he loved earth so much, if he loved his life so much, if he pursued his desires so much, if he took the liberty to pursue a wife or have children or create a house and a home or have Sunday dinner with his family or spend time with his brothers and sisters or cousins or friends or pursued a career and planned a retirement, or went on adventures to see the world, or filling his wardrobe with clothes that made him feel good about himself, or joined a gym to beef up, or worked 16-hour days to earn a promotion and a lifestyle he wanted, or avoided conflict to keep peace, or stayed away from sick people to keep healthy, or, stay, or stopped serving others because he felt tired, or gave up praying because he had worked for 16-hour days. Jesus would have been no earthly good. He would mean absolutely nothing to us. History wouldn't remember him. He would have accomplished nothing. But Jesus changes everything because he was so heavenly minded. Jesus was so heavenly minded that he is infinitely good for all humanity on earth. By his life of obedience, whatever the cost, by his keeping in step with the Holy Spirit wherever he was led, by his resolve to remain heavenly minded, Jesus did what no other human would or could. He satisfied God's holy law and reconciled us to God. Do we know that now through faith in Jesus, we have become the temple of God, His dwelling place with man, and that His Spirit dwells in us? When you and I are reassured that we are indeed God's holy temple, when we think about ourselves that way, when we have that reassurance that we are in fact uh, God's temple, that He does in fact dwell with us, that He has in fact given us His Spirit, 
when this becomes our reality, when this settles in, when the assurance comes, when the reality of, of this reassurance hits us and settles with us and we accept this, we accidentally discover that we're able to obey God, that we are able to walk with His Spirit. And then we can learn to be so heavenly minded that we might in our life do some earthly good. As we simply let the truth of what Christ has done dictate our hearts. Tell us where we're at. Tell us where we're going. And when His truth is our truth. We accidentally find that there's a no, no other way to really live. As Eaton would say, if you walk with the Spirit intentionally, you accidentally fulfill the law. When you realize that you're the temple of God and that His Spirit is in you, you find accidentally that you are empowered to live a life that you could never live by yourself. Not through your effort, not through your might but by the great work of God within you. Let me pray for us.